Hello, greetings. We're so glad that you're interested in spiritual things, and we're glad that you've joined us. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And we're doing an exploration into some of the people that we meet as Jews of the Second Temple period. We talk about the Second Temple period. That's a period from about 530 BCE to 70 CE. It's also called the post-exilic period. A lot of times when people talk about it, they divide it by the different ruling empires. The Persian Empire, that rules uh, from 538 to 334. Then we have the two Macedonian Greek empires, a Ptolemaic, based in Egypt, uh, that ruled over Israel from 334 to 200. And the Seleucid, uh, based in Asia, that ruled over Israel from 200 to 167. Of course, that's the year of the great uh, Hasmonean, Maccabean revolt, and the Hasmoneans then rule from 167 to 63, when Pompey enters Jerusalem, and from then on out, the Romans rule from 63 BCE to 70 CE. The Romans keep on ruling, but the Second Temple is destroyed in the year 70. This is a very difficult and challenging time in Jewish history. At the beginning of this period, the people are still recovering from the great fallout of the crisis, uh, the economic crisis, the political crisis, and the theological spiritual crisis of the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile to Babylon, in a time and place where the idea was that uh, Yahweh is the God of Israel, and Yahweh has made his name to dwell in Zion. What does it really mean if the Babylonians come and destroy it all and take us all away? Is, is Yahweh really God? Is he really king? Is Marduk greater than he? And the, Israel is trying to maintain their faith in light of the experience that they have ex, uh, experienced. And even after that time, a Davidic king is not on the throne. The land of Israel does not belong to the Israelites. Um, some or all of the Jews are living in foreign lands, and wherever they are, pagan foreign rulers are, are, are over them. At the beginning of this period, in the first uh, hundred or so years of this period, Yahweh is continuing to inspire prophets and instructors to provide Israel with guidance about what would come to pass, how they could serve him until the Messiah came. And we can gain a lot from looking at the people uh, who lived at that time, and to see how they serve God. Uh, we may find a lot of parallels between their time and ours, and this time, why don't we spend some time considering Queen Esther? We learn about Esther from the book that bears her name. Uh, in the Greek Septuagint version, there's some additions to the story of Esther. Uh, they, it suggests that it's telling greater detail about how she enters before the king in Esther 15, and a dream Mordecai has about the whole thing in Esther 10 and 11. Um, but she's not mentioned otherwise anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, Esther is an interesting name. It's a derivative of Ishtar. It's a Sumerian goddess of love, among other things. It's originally named Hadassah, which is related to the Hebrew for myrtle tree. She is a daughter of Abihail, uh, we are told in Esther 2, 5, and 7, and in 9, verse 29, that she's orphaned as a child. She's raised by her uncle Mordecai. And Mordecai is the son of Jair, son of Shimei, the son of Kish, of Benjamin, and of the line of Saul. We're told that Mordecai and Esther live in Susa, which was the former capital of Elam, uh, now part of uh, the Persian Empire in, in southwestern modern-day Iran. And they are at the gate of King Xerxes. It's called Ahasuerus. Uh, in your Bible, it's King Xerxes. Uh, Xerxes is the Greek name. Ahasuerus is more of the uh, uh, Persian and Hebrew name for him. He rules around the year 480. 
uh, and Esther is very beautiful, and we're told in Esther 2 and verse 8. And uh, when there was a need for a new queen, because the previous queen, Vashti, had been deposed, Esther enters into the king's harem. We learn something very important about Esther in Esther 2 and in verse 9. That um, the young women, the young woman pleased uh, Haggai, who has charge of the women, and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. And so we see here that she gains favor with the right people. Uh, that she uh, she is she's seen kindly by the the head of the the harem and therefore is put in a more favorable position. She lists she spends a year in preparation in Esther two ten through eighteen, and importantly she listens to Haggai and his instructions because if she follows those instructions she gains Xerxes' favor pleases him, and because of that she, he is smitten with her and makes her his queen. And so this means that Esther is now elevated into this position of being queen. But she hasn't made known her her, her identity of of, of, who, of her nationality. The main part of the story of Esther is this is her 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 involvement not involvement in but the way that she responds to the plot of Haman uh, in chapters four through eight uh, when Haman makes a decree against the Jews to, that will lead to all of their death. Mordecai finds out about it and starts grieving, and Esther finds out that he's grieving, and so she wants to comfort him, and so she. Uh, sends clothes and um, to him, and but then she receives words about the the fact that the Jews have received this condemnation in the beginning of chapter four, and she's very concerned because she understands the gravity situation that it's very serious, but she knows that to approach the king when you've not been summoned, the law is death in Esther four uh, and eleven. So it's not like. Uh, the, you have to be spared by the king. He has to reach out his golden scepter to you. So the, the law is death. The rule is death. Uh, you only get saved if the king spares you. And uh, uh, so Mordecai kind of really makes it clear that, okay, okay, yes, yes, God will provide deliverance from somewhere else, but do not think that you're going to be uh, fine uh, in, in the palace because you think nobody knows what's going on. Uh, that, that this is a, her, her life is in danger no matter what. And so she comes to this realization that she's going to have to do this. And in Esther chapter 4, she uh, really takes initiative here. She calls for a three-day fast. And she says at the end of verse 16, Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She accepts her fate. She, she, she is willing to submit to this, to, to do what she needs to do for her sake and for the sake of her people. In the beginning of chapter 5, she enters in before the king and receives mercy, and then she puts her plan in motion. And this is something that she uh, engineers because of her insight into the palace politics. Uh, when asked what she wants, she says, I want you and Haman both to come to a feast that I've prepared for you. And so at that time, they come and they have this feast. And then Xerxes says, well, what do you want? And she says, I want you and Haman to come back tomorrow for another feast, and then I will tell you what I want. And uh, when that second feast comes in chapter six, seven, chapter seven, she declares that uh, what she tells what she wants, and, and the way that she puts it is of great deference. 
Uh, if I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and to be killed and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. She goes in this very humble posture and just begs for her life. And, of course, the king is just astounded. How, who did this thing? And she pointed out there's this wicked Haman who's done this. Uh, Xerxes has to take a breather outside to get his head. Haman supplicates before Esther, but from the garden, it looks to Xerxes that she, he is actually trying to make moves on Esther. And so uh, that, that leads to uh, uh, Haman's immediate death. Uh, even if nothing was going on, it didn't matter. Uh... And now, because Esther can tell who she is and Mordecai's relation, Mordecai is elevated to the place of Haman. In chapter 8, Esther goes to the king, and even though she has not been summoned. Uh, she does so with a little more confidence, is, is granted uh, mercy, and she pleads for the life of her people and the reversal of the decree. And it's given for Esther and Mordecai to write a decree that reverses their decree. And in fact, it provides opportunity for the Jews to get revenge on their enemies. We see that in chapter 9. And when Xerxes asks her in the midst of that what she wants, she wants another day of revenge and for the execution of Haman's son. And it is done. It's very interesting to note that as the Jews are celebrating Purim, the, the Feast of Lots, because Lots had been cast for them, and it was spread over two days because of the difference between the way it was observed in the city and in the village, we're told, beginning in verse 29, then Queen of chapter nine. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the hundred twenty seven provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in pr words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed season, and Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther ob obligated them. And as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. It's Esther who has the authority to establish these things about Purim in her position as queen. And that's what we know about Esther's life. That's very interesting, because it's the first chapter in a very long saga, and sadly and very unfortunate long saga, of Israel's experiences in attempting to survive under the dominion of capricious foreigners who are seem to be very willing at the drop of a hat to go and slaughter some Jews, to alleviate political pressure, to make some money uh, just because they feel like it, uh, or, or for whatever reason, which is awful, but a very, very clear historical pattern. That's because Israel is small and peculiar. It's an easy target, and it yet somehow perseveres. And Esther 3, too, one of the catalysts for Haman's fury is the fact that Mordecai will not bow down to him because of his deference to his God and the commands of his God. Because of that, he's going to be threatened all of, Jude, all of the Jews because of that. Mordecai yet stays faithful. He's convinced deliverance is going to come somewhere in Esther 4.14, even if it's not through Esther. But it happens that he and Esther are, in fact, the means by which God delivers the Jews, and not just deliver them, but also to get even, uh, revenge on their enemies. And, and this is an important story in, this, in Israel, because what it tells Israel is that, in the future, there's going to be times where the very existence of Israel seems threatened. But there will be deliverance. God delivered the Jews through Esther and Mordecai. God will deliver the Jews through the Maccabees. God will deliver the Jews and all people through Jesus. 
then it's a very important dose of reality for Israel during the Second Temple period to realize that even though you might think that things are going well between you and the rulers, it won't take but one mad pagan that could really cause a lot of problems for their people. But it's interesting that this is not the book of Mordecai. Mordecai does a lot of things in this book, but it's not called the book of Mordecai. It's called the book of Esther. Mordecai might seem to be the catalyst for a reason why all these things happen, but everything he does in the end is dependent upon Esther and her position. Esther is the one who has the authority. But in very real sense, Esther herself is the embodiment of Israel's precarious position. She's an orphan. She's a girl with beauty. She's living under foreign domination. She lives in a harem. It's a very degrading position, if you think about it. Uh, unfortunately, she's basically there for the sexual pleasure of the king, and to maybe have some offspring. She is literally a play toy. That is her role. She's supposed to look pretty, act pretty, put on the show uh, for the king, when the king wants to put on a show for other people. That's what she's there for. Very uh, Modern feminism doesn't have a lot of great things to say about a harem structure. And, and while that's the case, it's interesting to see how Esther uses what she has to the best of her ability for her benefit and the benefit of her people. She uses her mind and her charms to gain favor with the right people. She gets into the most favorable position she can. Queen, is it the most... Uh, providing a lot of integrity? Perhaps not. Is it uh, something that... Uh, that seems wonderful and a great use of her mind? Probably not. But where she's at, it's perhaps one of the best end scenarios for her. And she takes the advantage she's given and uses them skillfully for her and for her people. She knows the customs of the palace. She knows how things get done. She uses that knowledge and insight to gain favor with the king and to rescue her people. She is willing to risk great danger, even death, but continues in her faith. But yes, she is being used for what others find favorable in her. She is being used by the king for her beauty. She is being used by Mordecai for the influence that she has over the king. Absolutely. But she herself uses her advantages and opportunities. She uses her charms on the king. She uses all that she has to get to that place for herself and for her people. And so the book of Esther is actually very well titled. The Jews should learn the lesson of her life to recognize that they are going to be in a lowly status. They're like an orphan. They're, they're going to be a very different people. It's easy to make consider them weak and marginalized. But they need to take the opportunities and advantages given into them to advance their causes, to recognize that they're going to have to be very shrewd if they're going to find themselves in positions to deliver themselves and their fellow people. For who knows if God has put them in those positions for such a time as they, in which they find themselves. And for the people of God today, for Christians, we can certainly learn from that wisdom because Jesus has something very similar to say about that in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10 and verse 16, when he exhorts his disciples, uh, he's sending them out as sheep into the midst of wolves, so be it, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And we see that example in Esther. She recognizes the danger that she's in. And she even brings it near to her. She has Haman 
come to a feast. She provides food and hospitality to the very man who has signed the death warrant for her and all of her people. The one who despises her uncle. Throughout, she maintains her purity. She goes through all the necessary preparations. She pleases the king. She, at no point, defiles herself with the sins of the pagans, the sins of uh, 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 around her. She, she does not engage in anything of that sort. She maintains her integrity to the best of her ability. But she shrewdly uses her position, her charms, and the protocols of court, first to advance to queen, and then to outmaneuver Haman and his plot. And that's the paradigm that we as a people of God have today. We need to uphold our integrity and our purity in an ungodly, sinful world, that as God who called us is holy, we are to be holy in 1 Peter 1, 13-16. That we as a people of God are going to find ourselves as a peculiar minority, that at best is tolerated, and at worst persecuted because we have our deep abiding faith in Jesus and not in the systems of mankind. We see that in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, 4 through 5. We're going to be in the danger of harm if we follow Jesus, and perhaps even be risking death, but we're to remain firm in faith to the end, 1 John 3.16. So what do we do? We should use wisdom in whatever circumstances that we find ourselves to proclaim the gospel, that when we are faced with opponents, that we find ways to outmaneuver them while maintaining our integrity and our purity, and that we use whatever circumstances and position that we may have to advance Jesus' purpose, to serve Jesus in the position which we're called, which is a sentiment that Paul has in 1 Corinthians seven twenty through 24 Because after all, how can we know whether we are where we are for such a time as this? and for the situations in which we find ourselves to serve God, to glorify Him, and to do His will. So we see that example of Ezra. A girl who's got a lot going against her, an orphan of a, a minority that seems very strange and easy, easily picked upon. But she uses her good sense and wisdom to advance herself to a high station and is able to deliver her people. And that's why we do well learn from her example. To be innocent as doves, yet shrewd as serpents, and, and wise as serpents. And to use what standing opportunities we do have to proclaim the purposes of God in Christ, and to uh, glorify His name and advance His purposes. We're again so glad that you've joined us, and we hope that you've uh, benefited from, from our conversation about Esther. If you've got more questions about Esther, talk more about her. Maybe you'd like to talk about uh, some other situ- things in the Bible. Maybe you want to learn more about how to be a Christian or and to serve Jesus. Or maybe you just need to talk or have a prayer request. Any way that I can be of service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. And if you'd like to learn more about the Venice Church of Christ, you can find us online at venicechurchofchrist.org. And we're also on various forms of social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.